Hey, what's going on, everyone? You're tuning into another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today, I have five-time TED Talker. Uh-uh. No? Six. Six? Oh, my God. You got to update your website, pal. And Suicide. I'm, auditioning for, I'm auditioning for number seven as we speak. Oh, ah, well, we're going to have to talk about that. Suicide prevention speaker, the mental health comedian himself, Frank King. Frank King, how are you, man? Uh, you know, uh, 148 pounds, 9% body fat. Wow. On my way to 4%, I got a contest on July 24th, an all-natural, true natural bodybuilding contest. How tall are you? I'm 6'1". And you, how, how much do you weigh? 148. No shit. You are a tall pencil, my friend. Well, yeah, and the, the good news is I'm 64. So once you hit Masters 60, then it's not about size anymore. Right. In bodybuilding, it's about uh, vascularity, muscularity, proportion, thank God. Um, because I got, I, got, I got bones like a bird. Um, but what I'm hoping someday is uh, my nickname on the bodybuilding circuit will be uh, Frankie Pipes. Because, you know, it's just the vascular, you know, freakish pipes. I like that. The <laughs> Frankie Pipes. Well, I'm going to call you that for the rest of the show. Frankie Pipes. Hey, hey man, Frankie Pipes. Hey, Frankie Pipes, Frankie Pipeolone. Um, so, Frank, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. I'm super excited about that. I'm super excited to uh, get this going. So, you've been a comic. You're a legendary comic. You've been in the game for quite some time. You actually wrote for The Tonight Show for about 20 years, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, correct. And how, how long you've been in stand-up um, professionally? I feel like a lot of comics have been doing it, just being funny their whole lives. But when was the the moment you're like, all right, this is this is getting real? Yeah, actually, I don't say professionally because, you know, you can be professional and have another job. Uh, I say I've been a comic full-time since the day after Christmas, 1985. I was negative one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was saying, before, long before you were born. Yeah. Um, I booked 10 weeks. I won a contest in San Diego. Uh, improv had just come to San Diego. First annual funniest person in San Diego contest at the improv. I won. Um, I was a dark horse candidate because there was 24 of us in the contest. One guy was already a headline. The rest of us are open mic. So uh, m- what I realized was I didn't have to beat anybody but him i didn't have to worry about the other 23 open micers all i do is beat the headliner and i beat him and next day i called him to you know to you know to congratulate him for trying hard and the message machine said this hi this is rick rockwell apparently the second funniest person in san diego yeah he got a little butthurt over that yeah Um, i changed his voicemail (laughs) i got uh i won the contest and and because the improv moved to san diego like seven, eight months before they'd hired a PR firm. So I had an amazing amount of newspaper articles and that contest, they put me on the front page of the entertainment section, my, you know, like, like all the way above and below the fold. It was huge. And, uh, somebody had, somebody helpfully mailed that to my ex-wife, uh, anonymously. Thank you. And, um, I used that to go on the road. I got 10 weeks booked and I booked myself as an MC in clubs, because I was I was working the improv and the comedy store in San Diego, where they're sending down comics from LA all the time. When I was a doorman, a baby comic at the comedy store, um, Jim Carrey was headlining, Dice Clay, um, then I moved to the improv, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Dennis Miller did a, his first real set in Southern California at the improv. And so I figured I was an MC in the world of comedy. I get out on the road, and the, I mean, the headliners are hacking it up, closing the street jokes, and I'm like, oh man. I, set, I put myself behind for a year by coming out as an, I should have come out as a feature act 
because I had the press and I had the time. And then I had been taking pictures in this road trip, which by the way, ended up being 2,629 nights in a row, seven years. But about six months in, I've been taking pictures of funny road signs for six months. And I'm having trouble following this magician. And the club happened to have a pull down slide screen. And I had an old carousel projector, you know, to junk, to junk, to junk. So I set that thing up, had two dozen slides. I did my set right up to the last five minutes. And then I go, look, hey, I got a slideshow for you guys. I took some pictures on the road and, and did the 24 slides, killed. And the club owner, Ted, came up and said, look, I don't want to tell you how to run your life, but you need to be doing that freaking slideshow every night. And so that's what got me to headliner was that that piece, that sort of prop prop piece, you know, those yeah. funny road signs. And it wasn't, there was no internet then. So these are all pictures I took. And, and to this day, 90% of the pictures in my slideshow, which I do if I'm doing stand-up, are mine. Some, a couple of them are irresistible from the web, but 90% of them are my photographs. And so, and man, the, the headliners hated to follow me for that slideshow. They'd see me setting up on that first day, you know, as everybody's getting to the club and, you know, it's that night's first show. And I, I can't tell you how many headliners walked into the showroom, saw me setting up, and I could hear him go, not that slideshow. <laughs> and then, like, go ahead. No, you keep going. You keep going. And then uh, somewhere about um, 2000, just before I hit 2000 nights on the road nonstop, I was working with a guy named Steve Rizzo who's now a big time motivational personal development speaker. Uh, what his clients don't know, which I keep threatening to tell them and show them video I've got of, is when he was a comic on a comedy, you know, comedy circuit, he would close his show with his impression of cartoon characters screwing. Um, you know, Porky Pig giving it to uh, <laughs> Anyway, Steve said to me, hey man, how long have you been on the road? Nonstop. I said, uh, almost 2,000 nights. He goes, that's it, that's the hook. You need to call ahead to TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, entertainment-driven weeklies, like three weeks ahead, four weeks ahead, before you get to town, and pitch them on that. That you know, you've been on the road almost 2,000 nights, you don't have a home, you just have you know, a post office box and answering service, your wife travels with you. And so I started doing that, and I started getting traction pretty much every town I went to. I was on at least one television station, like their noontime show in the entertainment section, in the entertainment driven weekly. And that makes club owners happy because that's best press they don't have to work for. I can remember going into the Funny Bone in Columbus, Ohio, dragging a TV crew behind me as I'm arriving. Dennis Miller's standing there. And he says, as I go by, he goes, who the hell is that guy? And somebody goes, he's the middle act. Oh my God. Uh, so I, that also helped me get to headline because again, I'm generating press for the club. They don't have to pay for it. They don't have to work yeah. for it. You know, they just open up the paper one day and there's my picture on the entertainment section for that week. So, so anyway. You just, you just haven't stopped doing comedy. Like that's a, an obscene amount of days. Like how did you, you must've just loved it. Cause like, I feel like I get into the things I, I love, but then I kind of fall out of them. Like you just had, like you didn't have any days where you're like, I can't do this anymore. No, you know, my wife came with me cause she was my girlfriend. That December, I said to her, look, I'm, I got 10 weeks booked, which I thought was forever. Yeah. And I said, I'm going on a road to be a stand-up comic professional. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figuring she'd say, oh, hell no. And she goes, yes. So we quit our jobs, put everything. We couldn't fit into my tiny Dodge Colt into storage. And we didn't set out to do that kind of, you know, 
seven-year tour. Yeah. But it was a comedy boom. From 85 to 95, comedy clubs were sprouting like mushrooms. And and the good clubs, Improv Punchline, Funny Bone, those weeks, great. But the stuff that, the thing that held the tour together was the horrible one-nighters, beer bars, pool halls, honky-tonks, mm-hmm. drunk idiots screaming, tell us some jokes we can dance to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a gun pulled on me one time, chair thrown at me one time. Um, you know, th- but that's what held the tour together. That's what allowed us to go week to week to week to week to week without having to have a home. And then um, 93, 93, 1993, 94. Um, let's see, seven years. I think it was 93, April of 93. I uh, came off the road because a radio station in Raleigh, North Carolina, my old hometown had lost a morning guy. They couldn't come to contract terms. And I'd, every time I went through there to play the club, I said, look, if you guys ever need a morning guy, you know, I'd love to come back to town. So they called me and I went and interviewed and they said, do you, do you take direction? Well, and I said, I became a stand-up comic because they don't like taking direction. Uh, you know, monologist, one, solo, do you get it? And they hired me. 18 months later, they fired me for, why? You can't take direction. I told you. <laughs> so uh, that made, allowed me to, to, you know, to settle down. And then I made the jump from the comedy club to corporate gigs because I'd always been very clean and HR friendly. And, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, I discovered that um, my first corporate gig was 1500 bucks for 45 minutes. And I've been making 250, 300 a night doing up if I was in a one-nighter. And here I'm making $1,500 plus travel. I'm, I'm riding the elevator in a Marriott, going upstairs, I'm gonna order room service on their dime. I'm in the, in the elevator with the bellman and I said to him, you know, out of the blue, I said to him, hey, man, screw comedy clubs. And he goes, yes, sir, screw comedy clubs. He had no idea what I was talking about, but he picked up on it like that. And that's when I made the decision. Look, I'm done with clubs. I, you know, at 1500 bucks, And then it was 2500 And then by the time the last recession hit, I was getting five grand for 45 minutes. Yeah, my best year, I made over $200,000 gross telling jokes. And then the recession and bookings dropped off 80%. We filed bankruptcy, chapter seven, we throw everything into the pot. And, you know, and that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. And the reason I tell you that is, is when when speaking began to come back, meeting planners said, frankly, we love you. We can't pay that kind of money just to be funny anymore. You got to teach us something, teach our attendees something. And I'm like, what am I going to? Well, I read a book by Judy Carter, who wrote the Comedy Bible, which I recommend to anybody who wants to do stand-up, get, get the latest copy. The Last October, I think she put a new edition out of the Comedy Bible. But the speaking book she wrote was The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. I thought, okay, well, if anybody knows how to do this, Judy does. So I go into the book thinking I got nothing. About halfway through, I thought, son of a bitch, I know what I'm going to talk about. Because my family history, generational depression and suicide, everybody in the family is on a psychotropic, more nuts in my family than a squirrel turd. And I came so close to killing myself. And I have two mental illnesses, major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. I thought I can get some training. I can speak on suicide prevention. I'll do my lived experience, what I learned, and then I'll teach them signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. And (laughs) I just... I just got an email before you came on. I got a booking in um, September. Uh, my fee range is seventy five hundred to fifteen thousand. Uh, I just booked one September tenth, which is Worldwide Suicide Prevention Day, for seventy five hundred dollars plus travel. 
It's just crazy. Yeah. If I'd known, if I'd known how much money there was in being crazy earlier, I'd have done that a long time ago. Oh yeah. I, I would have pulled. I would have pulled the trigger and had a scar right here. <laughs> just missed last second. Exactly. Yeah, you, were, you were traveling with an actual map, like you were Rand McNally. How oh, man. Those, those days, you were yeah. probably lost driving around. At Rand McNally and my <laughs> wife and I were laughing about it because we were going somewhere using Google Maps. You know, the lady talking to you. Yeah. I, I dozed off one time in the car because she would drive, I would sleep, and we'd change up. I drove, okay. So we were, we, were, we were supposed to be in Ohio, but she came to an intersection and she took a left instead of a right, and we went into Kentucky. So when I wake up, we're on some random highway in Kentucky. We're supposed to be in Ohio. So she says to me, Oh, I missed it. It wasn't very clear. We come back the way she went. I look in the rearview mirror, and on the bridge above, the where you go into Kentucky, flashing lights. Welcome to Kentucky. Uh, no way she could miss that. But yeah, that would never have happened if we had you know Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. we. I mean, I've gone into towns where without without even a map, I just had the address and you know a general idea. <laughs> yeah, you got to do that thing where like you slow down and you're like, I think that's it. And you drive around, and you're like, Yeah, that's it. Try to find pocket over yeah, there. This road's going nowhere. I can tell. This is not right. Um, it's like being parachuted into a town. You have no idea. Yeah. And what I would do is I would stop at a Kroger or somewhere and go, hey, man, um, where's uh, Rooster Tea Feathers or whatever the comedy club was? Oh, yeah, it's right on the corner. So uh, anyway, so we, my wife and I did that 2,629 nights in a row. And we're still married um, after that, after the, uh, you know, the bankruptcy, after, you know, coming close to killing myself. Yeah, that's uh, that's how you know you found a good one. That, that many days on the road and staying with you through bankruptcy, you got a good right. one there, Frank Frankie Pipes. Yeah, but bankruptcy that either makes a marriage or blows it completely apart. Yeah, so that was like right when the recession hit. Um, like, how do you like you? Everyone has like their ups and downs. Yours were clearly very down, very up, very down. Like, what is it like going through that mentally? And you said that you had uh, suicide ideation. Like that was pro pretty much hand in hand, or that was no. Um, what I have is major depressive disorder, and it's generally not situational. I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. And I always worried, now what happens if I'm this depressed and suicidal and things have gone to hell in a handbasket? Well, I found out. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, on an ordinary day, um, it's chronic suicidal ideation sounds like this. Um, for me and people in my tribe, suicide is always an option on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, and I do this in my keynote, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. And it's just uh, it's just always option C if something it's a coping mechanism, something goes wrong. Yep. It also keeps me alive. And here's why. Helps keep me alive. Because suicide is not so much generally about wanting to kill yourself. It's about wanting to end the pain. And so I know because I've I've already crossed that barrier. I know I can pull the trigger. So I can stand a great deal of pain knowing I can make it end any time I want to. Mm -hmm. So ironically, my chronic suicidal ideation keeps me alive. And it's a superpower in that, have I told you this? We had a wildfire here in September. I believe, uh, yeah. Where I drove back into the wildfire to rescue 11 re rescue kitties at our house. Who wouldn't? They'd, eva they'd evacuate the neighborhood. Uh, it's like level one is get ready, level two is get set, level three yeah. is go. Okay. Well, we, we went from one to three and I'm downtown 25 minutes away. It's level three. And the, and the fire shows on the map is a mile and a quarter from my house. And we have 11 rescue cats in that house. 
and there's no freaking way I'm I'm not going to try to get them out because I, oh. I couldn't live with myself if I had a shot. And I'm I'm suicidal. So what the hell do I care? <laughs> so the neighborhood is evacuated. I'm driving in as everybody else is hauling ass out. Smoke's getting thicker. I'm inside the house stuffing cats into carriers, which I have a whole new respect for the term herding cats, by the way. Now, every time I shove one in, two jump out. Oh, so yeah. I got two cats. I got two cats. So I know how it is. Eleven of them. I would not understand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I dragged and I got them all in carriers and I got them in the back of the car. And then I made a video on the way out of the, out of my, you know, out of, on my street. I started a video because I didn't know if I was going to make it out alive because the, the fire wildfire moves like, you know, it can move 40, 50 miles an hour. So it catches cars. So I made a video saying goodbye to everybody. Tell my wife how much I loved her, my sister, you know, um, I said about my brother-in-law, well, you know, he'll do. Uh, <laughs> I'm a comic. On the way out. Of On the way out. So, and then, of course, you know, hit send so that if, if I didn't make it out, at least they would know what happened, why. Yeah. And a buddy of mine called me later and said, man, you could have died. I said, I've been trying to kill myself for 40 years, you know. And he goes, well, you could have burned to death. I go, no, no, I was not going to burn to death. I have two handguns at the house. If, if the flames are licking my toes and I know for a fact I'm going to burn alive, that's not the way I'm going. Because because I've already crossed that barrier, I could easily pull the trigger. And, you know, I'm not going to get burned up. Good news is, the cats and I got out of the neighborhood. And I got about, I got 2,500 views on, I put it up on YouTube. That's what I hit, put it up on YouTube. I got about 2,500 views from friends and family. People sent me notes, man, I watched that thing twice. I'm crying while you're crying. And, <laughs> So anyway, that's how suicide is one of my many superpowers. Yeah, I feel like a lot of us are like that. And I actually saw that on one of your TED Talks, that analogy about the uh, car breaking down. Because I'm the same way. Everything you explained, I've been there. Like, well, if I can just kill myself and get out of the situation and be done with it. Um, yeah. And, and th those situations happen because I don't even want to deal with it. I'm like, you know what? This would be so much easier if I just wasn't here. So I, lo I love that, that you brought that one up. Because when I watched that, it was remarkable. And I was like, that is so fucking true. Well, and the upside of that is every time I've spoken since 2014, except once, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that. And inevitably, they do not know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. And their relief when they find out it's a thing is palpable. Um, and it, it makes me feel like maybe I've steered them just far enough off the path of suicide by letting them know that they're not alone, mm -hmm. that maybe they'll live a normal life. So now, can we talk about. Um the 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 gun situation with uh your suicidal thoughts what was that like uh what came about that day what was your oh yeah uh, I, I had time place and method um and i'd already tasted a barrel see what it felt like you know put a gun in my mouth and here's what i love is people go you know uh, suicide is a cowardly act oh really okay let me get my ruger hold on okay i'm gonna pull the hammer back i'm gonna shove this in your mouth we're just gonna wait to see how long it takes you to pee your pants uh, yeah, it's maybe a lot of things but it's not a cowardly act yeah um may appear that way from the outside like you're you're just an easy way out yeah I, that's a big thing i feel like it's misconstrued a lot everyone's like oh it's so selfish you're a coward blah 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 you're like ah, we're just trying to take the pain away <laughs> yeah and one of the three-legged one of the suicidality is a three-legged stool you isolate you've already made the decision you can do it and the last one is burdensomeness you feel the world be better off without you so that's where I was. I had a million dollar life insurance policy. We just filed bankruptcy. Um, if I if my wife got the check for a million bucks, tax free, you know, it's life insurance. She could just she could get everything back, pay all the bills, and she's going to still have to work, but she's not going to have to worry where her next meal is coming from. So I figure, you know, 
you know, there's no solution for that. Oh, yes, there is, but you're not going to like it. Um, so, but I, I knew having sold insurance right out of college, that there's a suicide clause in most policies. And I figured mine was about two years. And so I called my agent and asked him kind of offhandedly, hey, man, how long have I had this policy? He goes, I don't know. I'll check. Starts typing on the computer. I can hear him. He goes, uh, it's been 22 months. And oh, no, 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 don't do it. Because he'd had this conversation a half dozen times. And five of the six times, he delivered a check to the beneficiary because the policy was fully enforced. I had to wait two months to kill myself, which because I have chronic suicidal ideation, I'm like, I wait two months because I can pull the trigger on day 61, easy. Uh, by day 61, though, things must have gotten better because I don't really have any recollection of thinking, oh, today's the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, oh, wait, that was yesterday. Oh, well, too bad I missed it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I didn't pull the trigger because I, you know, things are a little better. Bankruptcy went through, phone calls stopped. Uh, my favorite thing about bankruptcy, after we filed bankruptcy, the attorney said, look, anybody calls, just give my number. The bankruptcy attorney gave. So I got a call. Some guy, you know, you owe this much money. We need some money now, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, you're going to have to call my attorney. Here's her number. He goes, that's not going to do. I said, well, you know what the best thing about bankruptcy is? He goes, no. I went, click. Nah. That's the best thing because I don't have to deal with it anymore. Ten years. Chapter seven is ten years on your credit report. No shit. Did not it know that. It came off August 9th of last year. That date I had marked on the calendar. <laughs> and we started in the 350s in terms of credit scores. Yeah. And right now, because we rebuilt our credit, you know, we got a book on rebuilding your credit. We got the, you know, the cards with the small, whatever, and we paid them off on time, you know. Um, we're bumping, I'm bumping up against 800 on all three credit, you know, bureaus. Um, I got zero credit card debt. Uh, I mean, my bankruptcy attorney, when I called to tell her, she goes, you know, Frank, that's rare. Most people who file bankruptcy, that, that, that didn't end up where they, they have no credit card debt and their scores are back up around 800. You've done well. It, we clawed our way back for, 12, for 10 years. I mean, it was difficult. But anyway, that's, I've been, I'm sorry. Uh, I've done all the talking. I apologize. No, hey, this is, makes my job way easier. You're way more interesting than me. So this is perfect while you're a perfect guest. I definitely want to talk about the TED Talks because I always find that interesting because obviously you're the mental health comedian, suicide prevention speaker, and we kind of got to how you got there just being funny and putting all the hard work in. How does one get onto TED Talks? Okay, like, for your for your listeners yep. or viewers, um, let's go through the process. Uh, by the time I get done talking here, they'll be able to apply on their own. Okay, perfect, perfect. They won't have to hire me because I charge a shit ton of money. <laughs> um, a friend of mine goes, "Let me get this straight. You charge three thousand nine hundred ninety-seven dollars to teach people how to get a talk that doesn't pay anything." That is correct. Uh, it's a great country. <laughs> the here's the deal: if you're you making to- people bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. The um, if you want to do a TEDx talk, here's first steps: go open a, open a browser window and type in TEDx applications plural 2021 2022. Because TED doesn't make it easy to find those. You can't go to an official TED site and find a link to apply to any of those TEDx. X means local. In those, there's a couple hundred in the U.S. every year. Mm-hmm. So TEDx applications 2021 2022. Now, when you click on that and hit the search, what you're looking for is a .com, like TEDxNashville.com, TEDxChicago.com. Nothing with TED.com in it, because again, you're not gonna get anywhere. It's a dead end. So if you get to say TEDx 
Chicago. Click on that. And oftentimes you'll see on the toolbar up above, apply to speak or nominate a speaker. You can always nominate yourself, by the way. Apply to speak and then a form shows up. And you fill out the form and fill it out and, and do their directions to the letter. If they see a 90 second video, don't make it 91. Yep. Because they get a couple hundred applications. They're just looking for the first reason to throw you in the no pile and go to the next one. If they see 75 words, don't make it 76. And so fill out the application and then, you know, fire it off. And I would keep applying every, everywhere you can find the link. I would apply. I just hired a woman and my clients also hire her. She used to work for a big 10X coaching company. Her job was filling out applications. So she left them, started her own company for 600 bucks. She will fill out 20 applications, 30 bucks an app. And most of my clients make more than 30 bucks an hour because it takes about an hour to do an app. Yeah, we're they're thrilled to have somebody else fill them out. We have to do all the creative work, you know, title, subtitle, elevator pitch. Yeah. <laughs> because she's not creative in the least, but she takes our work and plugs it into their application, makes it fit the theme best she can because most of them have a theme. And I just finished on May sixteenth. I turned in the work on a callback slash audition for one in Colorado, and I got an email this morning for one at a university in Canada where I made second round. And because I, I bought 20 apps from her, she mm -hmm. filled them out and I got two auditions out of 20 apps. I'm, so that, that's a good hit ratio. So if, if somebody's listening and they want to use um, Jen, my, my friend who does that, just have, you know, my contact information will be in the show notes. Yep. Um, she's, she'd be happy to, and she's, she's good at what she does. And, and then um, most of my clients want TEDx or speakers. So I've got a friend who used to be a sales executive speakers bureau. She sold speakers. She started a speaker VA company, virtual assistant, for 20 bucks an hour, 24 now. Um, she will research your ideal clients, track down the conferences, find the meeting planner, email, phone call, and try to close and book you and take 20%. Which again, most of my clients don't want to spend time doing that grunt work, you know, finding yeah. the conference, chasing down the meeting planner, pitching the meeting planner. Um, so the 24 bucks is about half what most VAs charge, but she's, she's going to make it up easily on the back end when she takes 20% of my fee, certainly. Um, cause if, if I get $7,500, you know, gig, she's going to get 1500 bucks if she books it. So it's, it's brilliant. The niche, I said, do you have any idea how brilliant that niche marketing oh, is? Yeah. I mean, it's a really narrow, you know, and for speakers, it's a godsend. Because that's those those are the things they hate doing, is that outbound marketing. You know, everybody's waiting. You know, doing SEO, what you need to do, social media, what you need to do. But I think you should do some outbound marketing as well. Yeah. So anyway, that that's how it works. So, oh, uh, tip on the audition: if you fill it out, send it in, and you get an audition, they're probably going to want a five minute Zoom overview. You know, record it, and then they'll do a Q and A live with you on Zoom. Here's the question they're almost always going to ask. Okay, that's great. Now, what are you going to teach our audience? You need to have a list of a half dozen things that the audience is going to learn, or maybe three things they're going to learn and three action items. Don't 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 lose the gig because you didn't didn't have you know. For example, if you said to me, Frank, well, what are you going to learn? Well, signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, and resources. That's those are my, you know. Those are, those are learning objectives. That's what they're, in the audition, that's what they're going to want to know. And finally, the, they choose how many minutes you do. 
usually 12 to 18 minutes, uh, 15 is probably average. So I, what I tell people is, look, do a rough draft of your talk, make it as long as you, you want to. Throw everything in, including the kitchen sink, and then just back out everything to get you down to the time. So if yeah. it's 50 minute talk, I'd, I'd plan 14 so you can breathe during the talk. So they, that, that's, that right there is TEDx 101. That's what people pay me $4,000 for right there. Wow. And you get it for free for in this, uh, this interview. This interview, yeah. <laughs> and, and if they want another half an hour of personal coaching, I, my first half hour is always free. Yeah. So you, we do a virtual cup of coffee. We can, we can cover the things we talked about just now. We, I can record it. I can send it to them that way. They're not going to miss out on any of the details. But, mm -hmm. And everybody I talk to that's looking at TEDx, that half an hour, I make sure before we part company that they have all they need to do it on their own for free if they decide not to use it. So it's, you know, it's that giving value first kind of a thing. Yeah. You're a good person because you even give out your phone number to people. Yeah. 858-405-5653. 858-405-56. Because I do it at keynotes. I go, look, here's the deal. If you're suicidal, call the lifeline or text the text line 741-741. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number. And people call. I mean, about themselves, about other people, you know, uh, they're looking at resources, they're, you know, their wits end, what do I do? You know, please go to his Facebook page and see if those posts are dangerous. Turns out they are. So yeah, it's, um, didn't I tell you I got a call from a young guy who said, I can't believe it's your cell phone number? No, you didn't tell me about that. You told me about oh, a couple yeah. old, old people that called you and stuff, but no, I didn't hear about this one yet. Yeah, yeah, it sounded like a young guy. He calls me up, he goes, I can't believe this is your real number. I go, dude, how bad would that karma be? Yeah, having right. a bad day call this number and it's fake i said i'll make it worse hold please and then the on hold music at the fake number is this another one bites the dust and another one gone and another one gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fantastic so yeah. you, so you're coming up on your seventh ted talk yeah well i'm doing my sixth i'm gonna i have to re record it it's virtual mm -hmm. i'll record it before the 31st of may and ship it off to them. And then the seventh one is the one in Canada at the university. So um, I'm, I'm, I'll, they want, they want um, I think it's a three minute, two to three minute video overview of the talk. And so I'll, I'll, I've already got a three minute one. I got to make sure it's just at three minutes. I think maybe 301. So I got to go back in and slice a second off. And I'll ship that off to them as an audition piece. And then if they like that, then we'll probably do a Zoom to give them a better idea um, of, you know, what the talk is all about. You're not strictly TED Talks either. Like you can get hired to go out and just talk about your suicide prevention and-, and uh, Oh yeah. Yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Lord. Um, the thing is there aren't many men who aren't clinicians who talk about this. Correct. Because men tend not to be forthcoming about things that are emotional or, or you know, or mean anything. And so to see a guy up on stage, being vulnerable and you know choking up a little bit when he's telling his story is very powerful uh, and 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 it helps start the conversation most of my clients say to me when i get there look we just brought you in to start the conversation on suicide because what i discovered is even though one person dies of suicide in the u.s every nine minutes that's 146 people a day that's like a 737 going to the ground like a lawn dart every day mm -hmm. uh, if you bring it up Pretty much everybody's got a story and they're willing to talk because you brought it up. I'm like a permission fairy. Ding. I tried to kill myself twice. Thanks for sharing. 
uh, and I'm talking to people I've just met. Yeah. Isn't that kind of weird though sometimes? Cause you kind of feel like the like mental health liaison and people come, you don't want to give them the wrong, wrong information. It, well, it happens to me cause I'm not as professional as you with it. Like I'll, I'll have people reach out because of my story and I gotta, and I talk to my therapist. She's like, be careful, like what you say. And I, and I make sure I do that on every episode. I'm like, Hey, I'm not a professional. Do you ever come like with problems with that? Where people are kind of like trying to get the answers out of you? Yeah, they ask a lot of questions. And if I don't know the answer, I tell them I don't know. You know, I just say, look, I, I wish I had, a, or I give them an answer, you know, best I can. And they say, listen, I wish I had a better answer for you. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're going to have to speak to your therapist about that or Google it because I just don't know. I mean, if you're asking me, you know, I'm going to shoot myself, what do you recommend? Uh, federal Hydroshock hollow points. No coming back from that. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, I had a guy call me at the number because he heard me on a podcast about the number, and he was he was seriously depressed and suicidal. And he says somewhere in the conversation, he goes, "I, I picked up a um, an Amtrak schedule." Well, I know he's not going anywhere on that train except heaven. Yeah. So I said to him, "Look, dude, I'm not going to do like a lot of people do and ask you to promise not to kill yourself. That's not my. That's not my. You know." That's not my gig. What I am going to ask you to do is don't do it by train. Because what's going to happen is you step on the tracks, you and the engineer are going to lock eyes moments before that thing plows over you. And that engineer is never going to be the same. You, you, you've taken your life and ruined his or her. So don't, you know, if you're going to do it, you know, don't, don't, you know, why jump off a bridge and land on some poor soul's car and, you know, yeah, change their lives. Exactly. And, and uh, con conversely, I mean, if you, you really want to kill yourself, get the get the dynamite, you know, the explosive vest and go find some asshole who deserves to die and wrap your arms around them and then push the button and do yeah. the world a favor. <laughs> but, you know, neuronormal people don't talk like that. No, no, <laughs> That's no why not I say, at all. No, because, you know. If, he, if some neuronormal person knew the reason he got the train schedule was going to kill himself by train, I think they'd just be freaked out. Oh, yeah. But I'm more That's practical. Right. Yeah, don't you know, kill yourself, but don't do it that way. That's why I like this show, because I we can have open conversations like that, because that comedy is a big thing for me with like talking about suicide, talking about depression. It's like, and like you said, being a male, it's totally, it's a different ball game. You don't see many people no. like us being this open as well. No, and that's why I'm always excited when um, I've got a guy that I'm, I'm doing a fundraiser in Colorado on Friday night at a thousand, th thousand seat theater. And two weeks ago, Colorado had had us at half capacity, 500. And then the word came down, nope, you can have a thousand. And the guy who's the executive director of the NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, uh, Western Slope, there in Grand Junction, Colorado, is a uh, sometime comic wants to be a professional speaker and asked me if I thought he could make, you know, good money or living at it. And I go, look, dude, you're a former, you will be a former executive director of a NAMI chapter, National Alliance Mental Illness, and you've come very close to suicide. I mean, you had it planned down to the minutest detail when you melted down financially and you're a guy. <laughs> it's a unicorn. I'm telling you, guys don't do that. And so that's, that's what I discovered is guys just don't, you know, as we say down South, big boys don't cry. We yeah. don't talk about that. So that, that's, that's the power of that, 
I'm, I'm listening to Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. And about halfway through, it hit me. That's one of my superpowers is being vulnerable on stage as a guy. Yeah. And most people have a vision in their mind what mental illness looks and sounds like. Now they're looking at me. You know, wrote jokes for Leno for 20 years, comic for 35, speaker, yucking it up. And it just doesn't fit with what they have in their head is what mental illness looks like. It's this cognitive dissonance. They can't hold those two thoughts simultaneously. So if you can change perceptions, you can change prejudices and, and reduce stigma. That's what I'm after, mm-hmm. is to give them an idea that, you know, what you think of as mental illness and what it looks and sounds like may be inaccurate. You know, the guy in the corner with a sign will work for food may have mental issues, but that's, that's not the rank and file of the mental ill. <clears throat> no, it's not. I was just laughing because I saw your cat walk across the screen. Like, there was no problem. I thought at first I thought it was like a CGI thing, but that cat was huge. <laughs> yeah, the cat is huge. Um, it's the biggest cat we've ever had. Um, <laughs> it was so casual because you did. That's a professional in you. You didn't even break eye contact when that thing no. walked right by. Oh, man. I, I told you. I maybe <laughs> told you this off the air. I did horrible one nighters and I was on stage. And, and the lights are in my eyes, so I can see the front row, but nobody else. Nothing else beyond the front row. And I knew somebody in the back was mad at me because I, I hammered him, you know, as a heckler, and I hammered him really hard. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, and I always start off gently, you know. Leno would say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have enough money for a mic for everybody. That's very gentle. And you ramp it up a notch. Uh, Do I come down to McDonald's and knock the fries out of your hand when you're trying to make a living? Then he comes back at me, and I go, look, save your breath so when you get home tonight, you can blow up your date. And, and he comes back at me. I'm like, okay, look, do I come down to the bus station, and knock the dicks out of your mouth, and you're trying to make a living? And he was pissed because the, the crowd's now on my side. Oh yeah, they're, they're, he's disturbing. You know, he's being a he's a public disturbance at this point. So I hear chairs moving as I'm looking into the lights, and so I decided to, to focus. You know, directly in front of me, over top of the mic, directly in front of me. It's a good thing I did because out of the out of the lights came a chair. So I just turned sideways, you know, like a keto. You just turn, you could go offline, and that turned sideways, came back, never even mentioned the chair. Just kept on, never stopped talking. Just yeah, <laughs> that's a professional move. That's a professional move. Now, what about the gun? The gun incident. Well, the gun thing was, um, it was Kingsport, Tennessee part of the Tri-Cities, Johnson City, Bristol, Kingsport. And I'm not saying everybody in Kingsport, Tennessee, is a bobble-thumping, race-baiting, homophobic redneck who thinks the Holocaust is fake and wrestling is real. Just the people who came to my show. So they loved the guy in front of me, Pat Miller. Um, he's a, he, was, he was, he passed away, but he was, he was three feet tall, three feet wide, 300 pounds, just a, just a really nice guy and big. And they built a platform for the comics. So we get up a little bit so everybody in the room could see us. Well, he's walking across the platform and a board broke under his feet. Snap! Like a two by four. You could hear it all over the room. Without missing a beat, he turns to the audience, best ad lib I've ever heard, and says to them, nobody panic. It's just a stage I'm going through. (laughs) That's legendary. Yeah, and I couldn't follow it. And they hated me. They loved him, hated me. So about 15 minutes in, I looked down. And again, I can't see anything past the front row. But over the shoulder of the guy in the front row, I can see the hand of the guy in the second row with a nickel-plated 38 with a hammer back pointed at me. So I turned sideways to make a smaller target. 
I lowered my elbow to cover my vital organs best I could, not my first goat roping, and waited. And finally, and this is pure East Tennessee, I think, a woman in the back got tired of waiting. She screams out, either shoot him or put it away. So you put it away. Silas don't fuck around. No. And so every now and then at a convention where I'm speaking, there'll be a photographer. And he'll come up and go, hey, man, do you mind if I take photographs while you're speaking? I go, look, dude, <laughs> I've had a gun pulled on me, chairs thrown at me. As long as you don't pull a pin on a grenade, we're good. That's perfect. That's the benefit of hiring comic, by the way, to do a conference. It's because there's hardly anything we haven't seen or done or had to make up for or stretch or, you know, shrink or, I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, with all the time you put out on the road. Now, you've been on the road multiple times, but you've also been on a ship. Uh, you're very <laughs> infamously known for the COVID cruise ship. Um, if you if you Google Frank King and just cruise ship, you'll see what I'm talking about. But can you let the listeners know what happened to you yeah. and what you were doing? Yeah, put in Frank King, comedian, quarantine. And you will find page after page. Oh, yeah. Page. Time.com, everything. Yeah. Newsweek, Time, the the uh, Daily Mail in London, the Independent London, the New York Post. Um, yeah, we're, I was in um, the Western Pacific. The There was rumors about the, you know, the Wuhan. They were having trouble with the, this virus, this new virus. And it's February 1st. There are two ships docked there. The Westerdam, Holland America, the one I'm on. And then the Diamond Princess, right next to us. The Holland American ship said, look, if you've been in uh, on mainland China in the last two weeks, you're not getting on the ship, which was a wise thing, it turns out. The Diamond Princess let everybody all want to come on who had a ticket. So on our ship, 2,500 passengers and crew, nobody ever got sick. On the Diamond Princess, they, were, they had hundreds of people. <laughs> And they were, they were parked off the coast of Japan in quarantine for weeks. Yeah. The problem is both those ships were in the same part of the world. So people conflate the two. So we, we sailed from Singapore. Singapore, yeah. Singapore, yeah. We sailed from Singapore. They sailed from Singapore. We tried to dock in five different countries. And they turned us away, um, including Guam. And I said to the captain, we own Guam. How can they turn us away? I say we close the Navy base. I'll show them. Uh, we'll cut off. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, we finally were able to, we docked in Vietnam. I said, yeah, because somebody agreed to take a check, I'm guessing. Uh, we docked in Vietnam, and then they flew us to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, to put us on a ship to send, you know, to send everybody, or Phnom Penh, to put everybody on a plane, send them home. Yeah. Okay. So the, our ship was never quarantined. Nobody on our ship ever got sick. The hotel was never quarantined. My contract was up on the 15th. I made arrangements to fly home on Emirates Air for $1,500 one way. Because uh, I knew they were looking for people who were trying to cheap out, you know, fly Ryanair or something, you know, for yeah. $300 back to the U.S. And somebody had been turned away from the airport that tried to cheap out. I thought, look, I'm going to go on Emirates. Nobody's going to stop. Yeah. And sure enough, they didn't blink. They took my temperature each, each stop I went to. But, you know, it's Emirates. Um, so I, and there was a CDC guy on the ground in Cambodia, the US CDC guy, there's an office there. And I had the test, the, the WHO test that Trump turned down famously. 
uh, by the Pasteur Institute was at the hotel. They tested everybody. Now, I didn't have my results before I left, but I asked the CDC guy, hey, man, any reason I can't go home? He goes, no, you haven't been in China. You don't have any symptoms? Go. He said, besides that, Frank, when you get to Seattle, trust me, the CDC will be waiting for you in the, uh, you know, in the Customs Immigration Terminal, which they were. A guy standing right in my path goes, Mr. King, we've been waiting on you. Uh, so they, they, and they took my temperature and asked me the questions. And, and I said, well, there's a woman who supposedly got it. She's like 80. She spiked a fever in um, uh, some in one intermediate, intermediate stop. Uh, and it turns out she didn't have it, just a fever. Mm-hmm. But she's 80, 80 or 85 years old. And they said, well, look, here's the deal, Frank. Um, that woman, you would have had to have been within six feet of her for at least 15 minutes to catch anything. So I thought, okay, here comes the comic at me. I said, so what are you telling me is, if I wasn't banging abroad, I'm good. Now they're on the floor. Because that's not the kind of thing that the CDC hears every day. Yeah. Made the mistake of speaking to the media on the way out. Two TV stations were there. Somebody tipped them off I was coming. And see, I thought it was a big joke, a lark. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I snuck out. I didn't sneak out. There was no, we weren't quarantined. There was no security. But I thought it would be just be a fun story to make it sound like I, you know, I like, I, you know, like um, Jason Bourne. I, yeah, yeah, slipped through the cracks. Yeah, people thought I sneaked out of Cambodia and sneaked back in U.S. I wish I had that skill set. You don't sneak back into the U.S., maybe yeah. the southern border, but not Seattle. So, I mean, and that's when the shitstorm started. Trolls came after it. The, the cancel culture. Yeah. I mean, the cancel culture has a place. The problem is every now and then somebody gets caught up in that who hasn't, you know, done something really bad. It just looks that way. Yeah. I changed my home phone number. I deactivated three social media accounts. I handled death threats. Uh, guy call, uh, guy uh, called me up because I know where you work out. I know what time you work out. You drag that virus back to the county. I'm coming to kill you. I said, okay, well, um, one, I've been trying to kill myself for 40 years. So good luck. Two. I, I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. And three, do you really want to take on a guy with absolutely nothing to lose? Seriously. Yeah. The, the funny one was the guy called me up because you came back to the county to kill everybody. I go, no, I've got a list. And you just made the VIP section. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, it was my 15 minutes. So I will not be going back. Because what happened was Holland America got blamed for letting me leave Cambodia. Which they didn't have, I was off. My contract was up. I flew right. my cell phone. And then I went back to the CDC to get paperwork to prove that I wasn't infected. Well, the problem is, if you're not infected, there is no paperwork. You only do paperwork. So I knocked. It took me 30 minutes to find the office again because it's hidden at the Seattle airport. I knocked on the door. The woman swings open the door. I go, I'm. She goes, I know who you are. Everybody in this office knows who you are. You have no idea, Frank, the shitstorm that followed your appearance in front of us. Because they got in trouble for letting me back Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it was, yeah. So, I, don't, I mean, my cruise agent said, look, Frank, it's a crazy business. I've seen people do things and then get back on the ship. So, just always send me your availability. You know what? So, because you never know. You know, um, talent coordinators change, you know, because I offered to change my name. <laughs> Frankie Pipes. Frankie Pipes. <laughs> exactly. It goes full so, circle. I, I doubt I'll ever. Just between you and me, uh, I would like to do one more cruise. Just just to say that I got actually got back. The problem is they were they were thinking about starting June one. Now it's going to be September one at the earliest, I think. 
the comeback, the Frank, the Frank King comeback on the on the cruise. That hey, that would be a great. You might get death threats again though. Well, a friend of mine said, um, if the ship, this is back in the beginning of COVID, if the ships keep sailing, you should just offer to go, because nobody else is going to want to get on a ship with a bunch of infected people. But you, he also said, look, Frank, see if you can't catch COVID, and then recover from it. That'll really piss people off. I was, I was going to suggest that show up with it. <laughs> yep. Uh, I never got it. I got my shots. Um, I was in the gym this morning. That was so liberating to be in the gym without a mask on. Amazing. Yeah. No, oh, man. man. That is great. Oh, yeah. And it was funny with the articles I was reading. It was like, we try to reach out to the CDC, but they uh, they did not get back to us. So I was like, oh, man, they were just hanging up the phone every time. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and I, that first morning, I went after I came back home and got into this trouble. I went to Starbucks. Why do they ask you at Starbucks when you order a beverage? What's your name? I'm like, um, should I should I tell her my name? <laughs> so it makes it, I'm just afraid you would freak. Oh, there's a cat tail. Yeah. Uh, that's a good you, whip. Yeah. That's satchel. Hey man, we got about three minutes because I got another one top of the hour. So fantastic questions. All right. Let's let's end it with this. Let me hear first off, let me hear your Mount Rushmore of comedians. Who's your four? Oh, um, Bill Burr. Yes. Jimmy Carr. Okay. Letterman was an early influence. That's why I wore a sport jacket, tie, Weegans, no socks. And I guess Leno, just from his work ethic. I dig it. I dig it. And then I usually follow up with this. If you had a theme song, you're coming out to the stage, like you're a fighter, but obviously you're a stand-up comic. What is your what is your theme song you come out to? Don't fear the reaper. Ooh. That's a good one. That's a real good one. That's perfect. That's perfect for you. And then lastly, three things that you're grateful for, Frank. Let's hear them. Uh, I'm grateful to wake up every morning on the right side of the grass, the sod. Uh, I'm grateful for my lovely wife of 33 years, uh, an amazing woman uh, who's believed in me even when I didn't believe in myself and I was going to get a straight job. She goes, no, you're not. You're going to follow your gift. And then for my mom. She carried two to term, nine months that didn't make it, and somehow found the courage to try a third time for me and a fourth time for my sister. I don't know where you find that kind of courage. So one of the reasons I don't kill myself is, is I figure she worked so hard and was so brave bringing me here. I've got to work at least as hard and be as brave to stick around. Frank, that's the way to end this end this interview. Frank King, I appreciate you so much. Be sure to check out Frank King on the internets, the mental health comedian. Comedian. Yep. That's my guy. Frank, I love you so much. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. I'll see ya. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.